Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 p.m. on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Listeners, thanks for tuning in and welcome to my fourth episode as an associate editor of The Podvocate. I'm your host, Naka Ugu. And today I invite my listeners to travel to Louisiana with me as we explore the legal landscape from an investigator's perspective. How much do you know about non-unanimous juries? Well, for decades, there were only two states that allowed for a defendant to be found guilty of certain crimes. Even if one or two of the 12 jurors in the trial voted not guilty. These two states are Oregon and Louisiana. In 2018, Louisiana residents voted to end the practice. And in 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court found non-unanimous jury verdicts unconstitutional in Ramos v. Louisiana. In 2018, the Advocate published trial data across Louisiana over six years showing that Black defendants were convicted by split juries at a rate 30% higher than white defendants. My guest this week is Bridget Snow. Bridget has been an investigator in New Orleans, Louisiana for six years. In this episode, Bridget and I talk about her day-to-day as a civil rights investigator and how Ramos v. Louisiana impacts her work directly. We also address the limits of the law in regards to institutional trust and righting wrongs within the criminal legal system. Please note, all opinions expressed on the pod are solely those of the individual and do not express the views or opinions of Bridget Snow's employers or Loyola University Chicago. Hi, Bridget. Thanks for joining me today on The Podvocate. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm just going to have you start off introducing yourself to our listeners, telling (laughs) us a little bit about what you do, uh, where you live, uh, and then we'll really dive in today. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, My name is Bridget Snow. I live in New Orleans. Um, I moved here about six years ago, um, and I was previously a defense investigator for the Public Defender's Office. Um, About a year and a half ago, I joined the uh, newly formed Civil Rights Division at the District Attorney's Office. Um, So I am, my title there is a Civil Rights Investigator. That's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about what the purpose of the Civil Rights Division is. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Jason Williams was elected DA uh, a few years ago. Um, He's the first progressive Black DA in Louisiana history, I believe. Um, And he created the Civil Rights Division. It's headed by Emily Ma, who uh, ran the Innocence Project of New Orleans for many years. Um, So It is similar to a conviction integrity unit that you might find uh, in many other DA offices, Um, although our span, our scope of work is a lot bigger than just innocence cases. So um, we do look at innocence cases post-conviction, but we also look at 
other types of cases where there might have been prosecutorial uh, or police misconduct um, or convictions that resulted from racist laws uh, or non-unanimous juries. Can you expand a little bit more, Bridget, about, you know, why, I guess, why more than innocence? I feel like we talk a lot about when you, when we think about these conviction units, you know, the focus kind of does tend to be on, on innocence. Why more than innocence? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that for the average prosecutor, um, it, um, you know, innocence is the main focus. Um, I think in a place like New Orleans, where we have incredibly high incarceration rates. Um, you know, I, at, at one point, I don't think this is actually true anymore, but we had the highest incarceration rate per capita in the world. Um, so there are a lot of other types of injustice that um, happen here as it relates to prosecution and incarceration that don't have to do with innocence. Um, one is the use of the habitual offender law, um, which is basically our version of a three strikes law. Um, it's used uh, much more in, well, historically much more in New Orleans and Orleans Parish than any other parish in Louisiana. So currently we have about 700 people um, in prison out of Orleans Parish that were multi-billed based on prior felonies. Um, and, you know, that could be anything from, you know, a peewit cocaine prior or a theft prior, and then, you know, they get caught up in a burglary all of these, or, you know, victimless crimes, even where people are given 20 years to life, um, depending on prior felonies. Um, you know, it also spans into crimes of violence. But um, so those are cases that we are systematically going through and removing multi bills on. Um, and then we also have the non unanimous jury verdict issue, which affects Louisiana, um, and Oregon, but no other place in the country currently. We touch on so many different cases besides innocence cases. Um, and even, you know, besides cases that just have non-unanimous jury verdicts, um, you know, we have a fair amount of cases that are just, we resolve on Brady violations or, um, you know, other legal issues like um, unconstitutional jury instruction. You know, we look at cases where that has happened. Um, and then, you know, we have certain police officers and certain prosecutors that have you know a pattern of bad behavior and so those are their own like you know case buckets um in and of themselves so it's um yeah it's just a very wide i think sometimes when i tell people what i do they're like oh so innocence cases and i'm like well yeah there's been about six or seven of those out of the 230 that we've resolved so that was definitely a, a big decision the ruling on non-unanimous juries definitely has a direct impact on the work that the Civil Rights Division does. Bridget, can you tell me a little bit more about the Ramos v. Louisiana uh, decision or you know what was being discussed and why that was so significant? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll, I'll do my best. I, I caveat that I'm not an actual lawyer, um, but I will give you broad strokes. In Louisiana in 1898, there was a constitutional amendment to um, make it okay to convict people on non-unanimous juries. Um, this was a very intentional amendment to maintain white supremacy and disenfranchise black jurors. Um, black jurors are 
statistically more likely to um, not convict, uh, and Black defendants are statistically more likely to be convicted from non-unanimous juries uh, in Louisiana. Um, Oregon had a similar amendment in 1933. Um, that amendment in Oregon came um, after a high profile, I think it was a Jewish immigrant, was convicted of a lesser um, of manslaughter instead of murder after there was one holdout juror. Um, so both of those amendments obviously had nativist and racist origins. Um, so in 2018, voters uh, in Louisiana struck down uh, the non-unanimous jury verdicts. Uh, and then Ramos was the U.S. Supreme Court's decision that uh, non-unanimous jury verdicts were unconstitutional. Uh, unfortunately, the Louisiana Supreme Court decided that um, that decision would not be retroactive for people who had non-unanimous jury verdicts um, who had exhausted all of their appeals. Um, and then recently, Oregon decided the opposite and that um, it would be retroactive. There are a couple of things that you just touched on that I wanted to you know, call attention to. We we talk a lot about you know how the law is socially organized and we know this, um, but the historic element is re is really strong as well. And so, something that I found interesting, you know, in my own research is that that jury rule that Louisiana you know had is you know a direct direct relic from the Jim Crow era. Right now in Chicago, we're talking about last year the mayor expanded the youth curfew. And we've, there have been really compelling discussions about the impact of the youth curfew and how we know that curfew laws are also descendants of sundown town laws um, from the Jim Crow era. So just calling that out, you know, these, you know, years can pass by and we know that there's been so many changes, but those laws that persist and even the, the origins behind them are important to call attention to because we we see that in the disparate impacts. Why is Louisiana a little bit more unique in terms of the impact that it's had um, for your work, you know, versus uh, in Oregon? Yeah, absolutely. I think just on a, a more um, logistical level, you know, there are the decision impacts about 1,500 uh people who are serving prison sentences in Louisiana who had non-unanimous jury verdicts. Um, and those are, that's spread out all over the state. Um, I think out of Orleans, and these are just estimated numbers. These are not exact. Um, there have been about 400 people who've had a non-unanimous claim. And then about 200 or so that ha actually have proof of non-unanimity. And they, that is its own separate issue in Louisiana because, um, you know, juries weren't always pulled or if they were pulled, it wasn't always recorded or if it was recorded, sometimes those records were lost. Um, so it's been a process for, you know, advocates on the defense side, but also for us specifically in our division to actually search for proof of these non-unanimous verdicts. Um, I don't know how record keeping is done in Oregon. Actually, I'm from Oregon, but I know we don't they, they don't have hurricanes there. So I think record keeping is probably a little bit easier. Um, but it also, you know, I think that decision affected a few hundred cases over um, over the entire state in Oregon. So I know that 
prosecutors have argued that it's just too much of a strain on the system in Louisiana. You know, I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but it is a significant undertaking to, to look at every case. Yes, judicial economy. Well, and it, judicial economy was also the reason put forth in 1898 for the non-unanimity. You know, the real reason was white supremacy, but they touted it as judicial economy. So. Exactly. The unveiling behind some of these words, you know, really, it just it just says a lot, you know, when you look at the the effects and especially the impact on on who's most affected, affected right. by these decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think as a person, you know, in my personal role, a lot of what I do, besides actually reviewing old case files and collecting records, you know, where we can is actually being in contact with victims and surviving family members of victims in each individual case. So I do think it's always important to call that out, just the fact that, you know, most of these cases in Louisiana are murders and aggravated rapes, and there are real, you know, human lives and human stories behind every case, even if it's something that happened in 1986. Um, you know, the fact that we are subjecting victims to relive this trauma or to reconsider the fact that this case might have a different outcome is difficult. And it's a it's a real tension in the work. I'd love to just zoom out a little bit. You know, I'm really excited to have you on the on the podvocate because you are working, you know, day to day in the details of the law. But in your role as an investigator, you know, you you're also not I've I've been thinking a lot about like the limits of the law, right? You know, what are things that the law can and cannot do? Um, but I think sometimes even within legal organizations, there's important perspectives, right? The perspectives of the investigators, the perspectives of social workers, right? Um, that play such an integral role in legal organizations. So I'd love to just, you know, let's educate, you know, some of our our law listeners. What what is your day to day look like as an investigator on the civil rights division? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's definitely different than, you know, being a defense investigator on the defense side. It's that's a lot of like being out in the community, knocking on doors, you know, interviewing witnesses, interviewing um, complaining witnesses. Um, this is a lot more um, records heavy. You know, where a lot of it is just our struggle to collect whatever records from these old cases that we can. Um, and that includes, you know, finding old records in our office. Um, sometimes those records are gone, even on murder cases. You know, somebody could be serving life without parole on a murder and we don't even have a file um, for them, which is horrible and shocking. Um, so it's, you know, collecting whatever records we can, collecting separate records from homicide, um, trying to get people's trial transcripts, um, collecting court records that may or may not exist. Um, sometimes we get proof of a non-unanimous jury verdict from someone's court, like the minutes from their court hearing that traveled with them to prison, but we don't have a copy, but they do from when they first went to prison. Um, so collecting records from all of these different entities and then putting it all together and seeing, you know, okay, did they have a non-unanimous jury? 
verdict, um, what else might be there in terms of Brady issues, suppressed evidence, um, you know, other issues, like maybe they had a bad ineffective assistance of counsel at their trial, um, you know, comparing the trial transcript to what records we have and seeing what kind of legal issues uh, might be at hand. Um, and then another, the other big part is doing the victim and survivor outreach for every single case that we work on, whether it's a murder case or a, a theft where someone was multi-billed to a life sentence and the survivor or victim had no idea they got a life sentence for stealing their hedge clippers, so. So Bridget, I know that you used to work for the public defenders. Can you tell me a little bit about that pivot to the civil rights division? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it did come with a fair amount of soul searching and hand wringing and identity crisis uh, having, but um, I kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, public defense would always be there, um, you know, at least hopefully, and that I could always go back to that. Um, I saw it as an opportunity to really learn more about the post-conviction side of things, which I was only doing pre-trial before. Um, and I was very impressed by the team of people in the civil rights division. You know, Emily Ma is an incredible woman, an incredible boss, um, one of the smartest people I've ever known, incredibly passionate and knowledgeable about the history of uh, the legal system in New Orleans. Um, the other lawyers and investigators I work with are just the best people I've ever worked with. Um, so I saw it as a huge opportunity to learn more, um, but also have a, a really big impact um, on a lot of people's lives and uh, to right some some wrongs, which, you know, I think we've been, well, some people would say too aggressive in our approach, but, um, you know, we've resolved about 250 cases um, in the Civil Rights Division since Jason Williams was elected, and um, that's about 230 people who are now home from prison because of those interventions, um, over half of those people were serving life without parole or virtual life sentences. Um, so the impact we've been able to have with the prosecutorial discretion that we do have has been uh, honestly unparalleled. It's been great. Those numbers are really uh, just really awesome. I'm kind of sitting sitting in those numbers in those numbers now, but you know, thinking about those people, I've, I I mentioned to you already that I took a class last semester called Reviewing and Writing Wrongful Convictions. And it was half, half seminar, half clinic, working with the Minnesota CRU. And um, we talked about a lot of things in that class. The seminar part was nice because, you know, there's, we're law students. We, ha we have a lot of opinions on, mm -hmm. you know, in, in some ways, you know, there are prosec future prosecutors in that room and future defense attorneys in that classroom. But something that someone kept saying was, you know, well, let's look at the numbers of of people, you know, in terms of numbers of defendants, numbers of people that are uh, in prison and all this. And one of my classmates made such a compelling point about that that's not even nearly like the right number to think about who's impacted by incarceration. Yeah. Because, you know, you have families, communities, neighborhoods, right? And, and so, you know, 250 cases, that you've reviewed 230 people who are now home, you know, that's, 
those numbers seem large, but when we think about how much larger that impact is number wise is, is really cool. Um, and so yeah. I'm, and I, I think yeah. about that a lot in terms of, you know, I think that people who would criticize that, um, you know, think that incarceration makes our community safer or that life without parole sentences make our community safer. And I think we've just seen from this work firsthand that that's not true. You know, I think I think we've had out of the 230 people who have come home, only about three have gone back to jail. Um, so, you know, rates of recidivism for people over a certain age who have served a certain amount of time in prison are just minuscule. And that's just true. Um, and, you know, not only are these people not a threat to our communities, they actually make our communities a lot stronger because they're strengthening their own families, their own communities. They're able to mentor younger people. Um, people, formerly incarcerated people are just a huge asset, I think, to our communities. And um, that that is borne out in the data. Talking about community, I you know, wanted to hear what has, you know, community response, you know, obviously community is not, there can be a variety of responses, but can you talk a little bit about the community and, and how they've been, uh, how they've responded to the civil rights division? Yeah, I think it's a complicated question. I think it really depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, I think, you know, some people, I'm sure pe proponents of um, or advocates for the non-unanimous jury verdict issue think that we're not, you know, moving fast enough reviewing cases. Um, some people think it's absolutely bonkers that we're letting lifers out of Angola. Um, so it really depends. I think it's a really wide scale. Um, and I think it's important for us as a division to just be able to to continue to do this work over the next few years. So, um, you know, sometimes that means we have to wait on a case or say no on certain cases um, when, you know, we don't necessarily want to, but um, we're trying to, um, you know, maintain this work. And um, something I think a lot about is a quote from Adrienne Marie Brown. She's an activist. I don't know if you've heard of her, but um, she always says, move at the speed of trust. And I think about that a lot in my personal work that I do reaching out to victims and survivors, you know, it's, it can be incredibly traumatizing for people to relive these cases. Um, so again, living in that tension between victims and survivors um, of these serious cases, and also, you know, understanding that some of these verdicts are unconstitutional, or that, you know, these people received ineffective assistance and counsel is a tension, I think that we're always um, sitting in and, um, you know, trying to thread the needle with. Yeah, that's that's very true. And I I I love I love that quote. Um and yeah, I think it's I think it's important to think about not of course, it's very important in in the work that that people do regarding, you know, wrongful convictions, you know, in the defense or prosecution side but I also think you know just working with communities working with people um and thinking about that quote I think is really really important um yeah and especially working with communities that have you know never trusted 
a, a prosecutor's office or never trusted a, a public defender, you know, these exactly. communities, disenfranchised communities in New Orleans that, you know, I don't, I absolutely don't blame people at all for not trusting our office. Um, and, you know, that continues, but all we can do is um, try our best, I guess, to right some wrongs. Right. And I think, yeah, I think that's exactly true. And when when wrongs have been committed, you know, um, the writing of these wrongs takes time. Uh, like you and I were discussing, institutional trust is not does not exist for for everyone. And there's real reasons why why people should should take their time, right, to to trust. Yeah, I also think that when you're talking about you know, murder cases and, you know, serious sex crimes and things. It's, it's hard to come back to a a victim or a survivor 30 years later and expect them to, you know, be able to forgive. I think that forgiveness is a real like privilege for a lot of people that a lot of people don't get to experience, um, or they don't have the ability to. So I think just being as careful um, and conscientious as possible when we enter into those situations is is important. Definitely. And something I something I'm I'm curious about and something that Chicago is is still working through in in these in instances of you know police misconduct um instances where there there's clearly a wrong that has happened um what relief looks like what righting a wrong looks like is complicated um because how do you begin to repair repair the magnitude of some of these harms right and so what have conversations about repairing harms looked like? And 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 maybe they've started, or maybe these 230 people that are home, like what have conversations looked like with them? I, I'm that's where I'm kind of going. And what I'm curious to know is if those conversations have started and and what that communication looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot about, you know, those people being home and giving them the opportunity to be agents of change in their own communities, um, especially because I'm, you know, a white person who's not from New Orleans. I'm not from this community. Um, It's not necessarily my place to go in and say, well, this is what your community needs, or this is what reparations should look like. Um, But I think seeing those people come home and seeing them, you know, organize with each other and with their communities has been super powerful. Um, One project that I would just want to shout out is called the um the visiting room um it's a it's a like narrative project about people serving life without parole in angola um and just stories about angola um and a lot of those people are out now so the project is expanding and they're you know going all over the country um doing panel discussions talking about their experiences talking about what it means to um serve a life without parole sentence um so those are just a few of the things that i think um, or that is an example, I think, of a really positive thing that has come out of these people coming home. But yeah, I think that that's a huge question in terms of what reparations should look like. Ultimately, I 
personally get so overwhelmed with those huge questions. I'm like, I'm just going to focus on my particular casework and um, be very like results oriented, which is what I like about being an investigator. Um, but yeah, it's an important question. That project sounds really cool. I'm definitely going to to look it up and fingers crossed that they, you know, are coming coming to Chicago. Um, but there's a the idea of the narr of narratives and those stories and how important they are, especially for people who are in very dire situations. I agree. It is it's about these people that are home getting to reunite with their communities and and come up with some of the answers to those questions or come up with the questions that they want answered, right? Um, and and feel empowered and have the agency and autonomy to do that. Um, so that's really yeah. cool. And and to make impact, you know, with the legislature, hopefully, you know, in a real concrete way, which is something I, you know, I personally know nothing about. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. And, and that voice that they have to do so um, with their unique positioning. Absolutely. We've talked, you know, we've talked about like the future of this unit and and how wanting to, you know, keep the future of the unit in mind in terms of certain decisions that are made. But I just love to hear from you, Bridget, what what are some of your hopes for the future of this unit or what are you most excited about about this work? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think. Honestly, one thing that you know, I never saw myself working in a prosecutor's office, but the, just the ability to, to review all these cases, the ability to, you know, sort of forge our own path in this division has been very life-changing. Um, and to be able to, you know, set up a system for people who are incarcerated to fill out applications for conviction review and sentence review and, and mail those to us directly. Um, you know, we have our whole own system of review and we, you know, pick out cases and refer them to attorneys. Um, so it creates a really unique opportunity to just really listen to people who are incarcerated um, from Orleans Parish, I think, in a way that has not happened before. And um, yeah, I don't want to say the sky's the limit because some of the cases are really, really difficult, but um, there's a lot more, a lot more good that we can do. Um, and I think that there are some definitely wider goals of the division that, um, you know, my boss formed the division as a civil rights division, not just a conviction integrity unit, um, because she hopes to, or we hope to expand to other things like, um, you know, we have a, an ADA who does police and prosecutorial misconduct cases specifically. Um, she, I think she hopes eventually to prosecute um, white collar crimes or people who are um, abusing political or financial power in New Orleans. Um, there's a, a cold case element. So it's a, it's a much wider um, vision, I think, for the, for the division. And I, I don't know exactly how that will pan out, but because I've, we're so bogged down in all of the cases. Um, but yeah, I think in some ways, uh, the sky's the limit and it's, it's cool to sort of create it as we go. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. 
If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our associate editors are Neko Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.